Chris, you may be seated. And yes, let me uh, say happy Father's Day to all of you dads and granddads and um, even spiritual fathers in the room. So grateful uh, for all of you. Um, So great to be able to worship uh, together. Um, And it's uh, clear that um, at least a few of us have been punked. And uh, so here we are. And um, the good news is, is that uh, based on last service, the, the elders are investigating the ladies' Facebook page uh, as we speak and seeing what kind of repercussions need to come. As I think about Father's Day, though, uh, today happens to be uh, the 21st, uh, I guess I would say, anniversary or birthday that my, I have been a father today, 21 years Uh, My oldest son celebrates his birthday, and as I thought about that, before we turn to Hebrews chapter 5, just a a word of encouragement to all of you who are dads in the room who might one day be dads, um, and just uh, uh, to let you know um, how uh, loved you are and how appreciated you are, um, but also um, to encourage you in, uh, I guess I would say, three things that I have learned in my 21 years as being a dad, and I hope that they might um, just help uh, you or um, encourage you along the way. Um, and uh, we need one another. One of the beautiful things of the church is that we have one another that we can lean on, uh, we can be strengthened by. And uh, so very quickly, I'll just share these three things that I've learned. The first is to keep the main thing the main thing. And that main thing is the gospel. Um, in your homes, in your life, um, in your relationship, especially with your children, I just want to encourage you to keep the main thing the main thing. Keep the gospel central uh, to who you are and what you teach, the way you lead. Um, and what that reminds us of when we do that is, is that we are all going to fail. We are all going to fall short of the glory of God, and therefore we're going to fall short in our responsibility as fathers. And so we need the gospel. We need it for our own hearts and souls. And so um, at the same time, uh, our children and their children will need to know that and need to see that lived out. And so keep the gospel central to your relationships in everything, but especially as fathers. Second, one of the ways that we do this is to keep repentance involved in all of your family life. Repentance is the key to grace. And if we proclaim the gospel, which says that we understand our failures and our shortcomings and we ourselves fall at the knees of Christ in need of his grace, relying on his grace, if that's the message that we proclaim and that's the message that we live, then we all should understand grace very well. And if we understand grace very well, then we should be quick and can be quick to repent. Because we, what happens, what's happening when we repent is we're relying on the grace of Christ. We are confessing that we don't have it all together. We are confessing that we aren't perfect and that we need God's grace in our lives. And so let me encourage you, especially young dads, be quick to repent first to the Father, but then also to your children. When you mess up, tell them you messed up. Dad's not perfect. He needs Jesus. That is one of the best ways for us to display and live out the gospel in front of our children. Third, we're doing this well this morning. Don't take yourself too seriously. You're not that big of a deal. Jesus is. So have fun. Cut up. 
Don't, don't have to take everything so seriously. Enjoy your children. Enjoy the joy that they bring into your home and into your family. You don't have to be perfect because you aren't perfect. So don't try and you won't be perfect. So rest in that. Rest in just not taking yourself too seriously. So three encouragements for you guys. I hope that helps. I hope that blesses you in some way, strengthens you. Most of all, I hope it just reminds you of how much your heavenly father loves you and sent Jesus to be our redeemer. We're going to look very closely at this message of our redemption and the hope that we have, as you heard Chris read from Philippians chapter 2. And by the way, I'm going to talk extra fast because I realize our air conditioners are not keeping up with the heat. I can't even talk right now because it's hot, so I get it. So just bear with us. I I, I appreciate your patience and your grace. Um, We'll hopefully get something corrected this week on that front. But if you'll turn to Hebrews chapter 5... You may remember if you were with us last week that we began in, and looked at Ephesians, or excuse me, Hebrews chapter 4, the end of Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, where the author of Hebrews is, in a sense, illuminating or sort of setting the stage for all that he's going to teach us in chapters 5 through 7 about the priesthood of Christ and that we have a high priest. He says in verse 14, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because he essentially sets up, we have this great high priest, And here in chapter 5, he is going to explain more fully the work of Christ and why Jesus is that high priest, one that we need, but also the sufficient priest, the one who could sit down at the right hand of the Father, the one whose name will be above every other name and every tongue will confess as Lord one day. How is that possible? Well, he explains that in a sense beginning in chapter 5. For every high priest, verse 1, chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself but only when called by God just as Aaron was." So he sets up the priesthood and explains in a little bit more detail this idea or this role that the priesthood played. Remember, these are Jewish Christians living, most likely we believe, in Rome, finding themselves persecuted and, and, and struggling in a sense because of the persecution that they were facing, struggling with their faith. And so the author of Hebrews writes this letter to encourage them in their faith, to sort of fan the flame and say, keep going. Don't worry, brothers. This is, you, you, you have a, a, a Savior who will take you home and, and, and finish all the work that he started. And this whole letter is just an, is a letter of encouragement to strengthen them in their walk with Christ. And so he's elevated Jesus above all of these Old Testament figures that these Jewish Christians would have known sort of second nature, just they would have known all of the roles that they played. It's somewhat like me. You, you can name a Dallas Cowboys quarterback of old, and I can talk to you about them. I know them very well, all right? I know not all of you have that gift, but that's one that the Lord has blessed me with. 
And so I, I can easily call to memory these, these sort of heroes of the athletic field of my past and of my youth. Well, in the same way, in a much more important way than anything athletically, these Christians could remember their heritage and they knew the stories of the Old Testament. And so the way to elevate Jesus was, hey, I know you get Moses. I know you thought he was great. Let me show you Jesus. You think the angels are the messengers of God? Let me show you Jesus. You think the priesthood, those priests who made intercession for you, who went and made sacrifices for you, you think that they were doing something great and powerful? Let me just assure you that Jesus, our great high priest, is even above all of them. And here in 5, he explains this idea of the priesthood and why Jesus is, a, is that great high priest that we need. And so he starts with the human institution. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to do what? To act on behalf of men in relation to God. And so he deals with the horizontal relationship here. He says that men are appointed by God to serve as priests, and he connects down at the end of verse 4, he points to Aaron. And again, historically, here's what happened. Aaron was set apart by Moses, ultimately by God through Moses, to serve as a priest to the, the Israelites. He and all of his tribe would become the priests. So everyone that was of the line of Aaron would serve in the royal priesthood to the Israelites. And they were appointed by God. And what their responsibility was, was to mediate between God and men and to act on behalf of men in relationship to God. And what they did, they offered gifts and sacrifices for what? For sins. Again, I talked about this last week. You don't have Old Testament saints kind of quibbling over whether there is a thing called sin whether sin is real, whether it's something that needs to be dealt with, whether it's something that ultimately does plague us. No, they acknowledge their sinfulness and their need for something to be mediated on their behalf for them to have a relationship with God. Those sins had to be dealt with, and God established the priesthood to mediate between himself and men so that they would make sacrifices. They would bring the perfect sacrifice into the Holy of Holies one day a year on the Day of Atonement, and they would make a sacrifice for sins. But here it describes a little bit more fully why this was possible, why they understood their role, why they could do what they were called to do. It says, He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. He's talking about the earthly priesthood here. They can deal well with the ignorant and the wayward. When we read that, that doesn't sound too harmful, but if I called you up and I said, let me introduce you to my ignorant and wayward friend, you'd understand the weight of that. Brothers and sisters, I won't call you up, I'll call myself to the stage. I am ignorant and wayward. We all fall short of the glory of God. We find ourselves ignorant and wayward, ignorant to the things of God and drifting away from the things of God, of following away from his path. And in the understanding of that reality, they say, he says of the priests, these men, they were gentle with the ignorant and the wayward because they rightly understood their own ignorance and waywardness. This is why we as Elders of this church are called and strive to deal gently 
and graciously with each and every person because we understand that the sins that beset you are the same sins that beset us, the same sins that require our own need for a Savior to redeem us. And so the priests, they understood their own weakness, and so they would deal gently with those that were far from God or drifting away from God. And because of all of this, in verse 3 it says, they are obligated to offer sacrifice. And they make offers of sacrifice, again, spelling it out very clearly, not just for the sins of those people, but for their own sins, just as he does for the sins of the people. And so he describes this priesthood, these men who take care of and mediate the relationship between God and man and do so gently, understanding their own sinfulness and their own need for their sins to be atoned for, and they make sacrifices for these sins. But if we think back to what he started with at the end of chapter 4, he says that we have a great high priest who is not unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect was tempted just as we are. And here's that distinction, yet without sin. Do you notice he describes weakness in both situations? He's describing Jesus, our Messiah, the Savior. He says he's, under, he's able to understand all of the weaknesses, all of the challenges, the, the trials that you face, the very temptations that you have come against. We have a Savior who is familiar with those things. He has dealt with those things. But he dealt with those things without sin. Here, these priests who were set apart by God, called to their roles by God, they made sacrifice for sin, but they made sacrifice even for their own sins. We think about this contrast. How often do we think about our high priest, Jesus, dealing with all of the things that we have dealt with without sin? And without sin, still in the humility that was described that we heard from Philippians chapter 2, dealing with us in the same way that these earthly priests dealt with their people, with gentleness. Jesus deals with us gently. He who did not sin deals with us gently. It makes sense when we're sort of all on the same page. It sort of makes, I can, I can a, a little bit make sense of the fact that I'm a sinner, you're a sinner, I'm going to deal gently with you because I understand the grace that I have received, so I want to make sure that you understand the grace that you have received. That makes logical sense. What doesn't make logical sense is the one who is perfect and without sin still dealing gently with us when we mess it all up. Here's the amazing thing and one of the things that challenges us as Christians and believers. We get that backwards so often. We are eager to receive the grace and the mercy of Christ and yet, that same grace that we have received from Christ as he has dealt gently with us in our sin, we are very quick and eager to find the sins of those people around us and not deal gently with those people, but rebuke them and point them out and feel as if our responsibility to deal with it ourselves. We have received the grace of Christ. And the priests, even those who understood it, they also, because they realized they themselves were sinners, they dealt gently with others. And how often do we find ourselves 
looking at the sins of other people, saying, yeah, you messed that one up, Chuck. Rebuking them, mocking them, not dealing, not extending the same grace and mercy that we have received. We should consider our high priest who deals gently with us in all of his perfection and be more like these priests who understood their own sinfulness and because they understood their own sinfulness, they dealt gently with the sinfulness of those that were around them. That doesn't mean that they just turned the other way, friends. That doesn't mean that they ignored it. They dealt gently with them, graciously with them. This is the priesthood of Christ that we aspire to, that we strive to look like. In verse 4, he describes again how these men were appointed to the priesthood. And here he makes a connection to Jesus himself and how he was appointed. And no one takes this honor for himself, talking about calling themselves a priest, but only when called by God just as Aaron was. If you want to go back to Exodus, you can look in Exodus chapter 28 and you can see Aaron's calling to the priesthood and being set apart, he and his tribe, set apart to this. They were appointed by God. Here he says, so also Christ, verse 5, did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him, appointed by God. Jesus was appointed by God just as these priests were appointed by God. And as one commentator says, when you're appointed by God for something, that removes any pride or ambition. The role that they served, the, the, the role that they played in each other's life was one of humility and service, not pride and ambition. These priests didn't aspire to become priests. No, they were appointed by God to become priests, to be called to this. And that is the root of this calling of God on their life that led to the gentleness with which they dealt with the people. Jesus also appointed by God. And as he was appointed by God, he came in great humility. Great humility. We heard Philippians chapter 2, John 8, Jesus speaking of himself in this. He says, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. Now, if there was ever one who could say, I'm going to glorify myself, I'm going to stand before you and make sure you understand who I am, it was Jesus. He had the right to do that. But he said he didn't here in John 8. He says, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me. Jesus, appointed by God, comes to us and plays the role of high priest with great humility. Self-glorification was not the mind of Christ. He would not gain. He understood that. He came to lose everything. Have this mind, the scriptures call us to, to have this mind of Christ. And what is the mind of Christ? It is a mind that is not after self-glorification. It is a mind that is after the glory of God. And in Jesus' role as great high priest, yes, he mediates between God and man, but he also paints this picture of humility and how we are to live with one another. 
He was appointed by God, and this is how he was appointed by God. And God uses these two psalms to describe his appointment. First, he says, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Verse 6, and he says in another place, this is another psalm, you are a priest forever. And so he brings this connection into play here. The author of Hebrews describes Jesus as the son and a priest. He is the son and and a priest. In those two roles, we see the priesthood, we see his humanity on display. Again, remember, these were men set apart, called, appointed by God to mediate between God and himself. And Jesus was the final and the perfect mediator, the one who could rightly sit down at the right hand of the Father. And in that divinity, although he is divine, in that role of priesthood, he is displaying his humanity. And yet, he is also a son. He is the son of God. He is fully divine. And we see these two things come together. And this is why the second psalm there, quoted, says, you are a priest forever. And he connects Jesus and his priesthood to this order of Melchizedek. Now we're going to learn more about Melchizedek in chapter 7. I know you want to circle your calendars. That's two weeks from now, okay? We're going to hear a lot about Melchizedek. But here's the summary. Here's sort of the preview of this. What he's describing there is that you are not a priesthood after the order of Aaron, of Aaron's line. No, you are a priesthood of the order of Melchizedek, which Melchizedek was a king and a priest. He was the only one who was both king and priest. And so as son, he is king, an heir, like Melchizedek. But he is also in his humanity a priest, one who would come and be the sacrifice. And why could Jesus be the sacrifice, the proper sacrifice for the sins of the world? We can see this in verse 7. In the days of his flesh... Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. What is being described here? This is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. In his flesh, while Jesus walked the earth, he offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears. And where did he do that? He did that in the garden. And he did that in the garden just moments before he would ultimately be led to the cross. And he cried out to God with tears and in great anguish, asking God to save him from death. Now, this is a bit of an interesting description and that story, which is recorded in the Gospels. We can go and read those of that scene. Why did Jesus pray to God and ask him to take this cup from me? Why would he do that? He told his disciples over and over and over again that he came to lay down his life. He came with the cross fully in mind. 
He knew where he was headed the whole time. And so if he knew that he was going to the cross, why when it came time to go to the cross, and he'd sort of made various different things that happened where he'd say, no, this isn't the right time. I'm not supposed to die. So he'd disappear and go across the Sea of Galilee. Remember that? He knew there was a perfect time that he was supposed to go to the cross. He was prepared for that and knew that that's where he was headed. And yet here, when it is that perfect time, according to the will of the Father, for him to go to the cross, he's praying and asking God to take this cup from him. Why? It's not because Jesus feared physical death. He understood what was coming for him. He knew the cross. It was not because the pain of the cross was so great that he was afraid of what might happen to him. One, we know this to be true because we have seen martyrs of our faith who have gone to the stake to be burned for their faith singing to Jesus. And if a man can do that, then the Son of God could have done that. No, what he was crying out to the Father, the reason he was pleading with God to take this cup from him was not the pain of the cross. While it was greatly painful and gruesome, he was crying out to the Father because he understood he was about to take on the condemnation for sin for all time. He was about to receive the rightful wrath of God against sin, your sin and mine. And Jesus understanding the wrath of God and the weight of that is crying out to the Father saying, take this cup from me. And what does the author of Hebrews say to us? He offered up these prayers with loud cries and tears to him who is able, to the Father who is able to save him from death. And what? He was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, although he was the Messiah, He learned obedience through what he suffered. Here's what this teaches us. Our great high priest suffered because that is what was required of him. Obedience was at stake. Obedience was always the mission of Jesus. What Jesus was after was complete and total obedience to the cross, or to to God. And so he wanted to be obedient to the Father. And he was asking the Father, is there another way for me to remain obedient to you other than taking on your wrath? This is why Jesus, by the way, cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When he was forsaken, he was taking on the condemnation of all sin for all time. And here's the good news. This is the good news for you and for me. Don't miss this. Wipe the sweat from your brow and hear this message. He he was heard, it says, because of his reverence. The father heard his cries. And do you know what happened? He was saved from death. Because three days later, In God's perfect timing, he answered the son's prayers, and he walked out of the grave. That's what we celebrate at Easter. That's what we celebrate every day of our Christian lives, is we have a high priest who came and made atonement for sin, took on the wrath of God against sin for all time, so much so that he would cry out to the Father, why have you forsaken me? But we can have hope 
because these words are true. He was heard. His prayers were answered. Even though he suffered, obedience was achieved. As we think about this, I want to encourage you, friends. Suffering is a part of this life. I wish that it were not so, but we have it modeled for us in Jesus. And how often we forget that reality. We forget that suffering is a part of our life. We forget that as we're called to obedience, that suffering very often comes with that. Jesus' obedience was learned because he achieved our redemption through his suffering. Obedience flowed out of his suffering. And doesn't this wreck our idea? Again, one of these other things that we get backwards. We think that if we are obedient, we should not suffer. We teach our children that from an early age. If you're obedient, you get ice cream. Disobedience, not so much. Suffering will come. And the Christian life, though, the Bible turns this upside down and shows us that suffering is a part of obedience because we're not trying to gain this life. We are living for our eternal life. And we know what Christ has purchased for us through his sacrifice and that is worth our obedience. Grace that we have received through Christ should lead to obedience. Don't get that backwards. Don't think that obedience is what leads to grace. No, grace that we have received, what Christ has done for us, that sacrifice, that atonement, taking on the wrath of God, his obedience to the Father is how we receive grace. And so as we have received that grace, then obedience must flow out of that. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey. All who obey him. These believers that receive this letter, perhaps because of their suffering in the life that they were living in, the persecution that the Roman government was bringing upon them, they were beginning to feel as if, surely, God has forsaken us. God has forgotten us. And he writes this letter to remind them that they have a high priest who suffered more than they would ever suffer. And he suffered in their place, taking on God's wrath against sin so that they could receive his grace. And then because of that, they could press on and continue to live their lives as obedient followers of Jesus. When we suffer, the temptation is to think that we need to turn away from something. Perhaps we need to realize that this life is a life where we are called to suffer for the sake of Christ. We are called to suffer for his glory. We see it modeled for us in our great high priest who is very familiar with every bit of suffering that you're walking through right now. He is aware of it. He is familiar with it. And his call to obedience is a call of obedience that he lived out perfectly. We do have a high priest who is able to carry us, to sustain us, to walk with us. He was made perfect. And so in that perfection, 
as we look to Jesus this morning, as we consider that sacrifice, what he has done, remember that now there is one mediator between God and man. It's not me. It's not anyone in this room. It's the man, Christ Jesus, who was perfectly obedient to the will of the Father, even in the face of great suffering. And let us be like him and obey. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have a Savior, the great high priest who is familiar with the sufferings of this life, the suffering that perhaps many of us are enduring in this very moment this morning. Thank you, Jesus, that you came lived the perfect life that you did so that you might be the rightful sacrifice for the sins of the world. Thank you for your obedience to the Father. Thank you for your obedience to the appointment that he called you to, to be our great high priest, the one who would mediate between us and him through your sacrificial death on the cross. Would you help every soul in this room to have a renewed hope, a renewed hope in what you have done, a renewed hope in your love for us, and help us to be a people who live in obedience to your commands, not because we are striving to make our way to you, but because we understand what you have already secured for us through your sacrifice. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the preaching of God's Word at City Church Melissa. We meet Sunday mornings at 9 and 1045 a.m. at 2300 Vineyard Hill Lane, and we hope to see you there soon. City Church Melissa for the glory of God and the good of the city.